Hi, this is Paul. Welcome to Archonnect Sessions, episode number eight. It's Thanksgiving this week, so this episode is airing a day earlier than usual. So hopefully you got a chance to download it to keep you company on your travels. Uh, today we're really excited to have Michael Rotondi and Orhan Ayuche joining me and Amelia in the Archonnect headquarters for a conversation about architectural education. For those of you who are not already familiar with Michael Rotondi, he co-founded Morphosis with Tom Main in 1975 until leaving to start his own firm, Roto Architects, in 1992. And um, perhaps most applicable to our conversation today, Michael was also one of the founding students of SciArc and then later became the director of the school for 10 years, starting in 1987. After our discussion with Mike Rotondi, Ken and Donna will join us to talk about modernism's unwelcome response in Charleston, South Carolina. And as usual, we'll also touch on other topics, architectural and related. Now let's speak with Michael Rotondi. Orhan, the mic is yours. Michael, can you give us a brief background information as to who you are and how you brought up here in L.A. and uh, up to today? In a, in a kind of a short... Okay, uh, context. Context. I would talk about... Actually, I talk about context with students a lot. My understanding of it came from looking at all of the different... Some of it is some of it is venues, some of it has to do... Yeah, like my... The context for me is the city of L.A., uh, having seen it develop from... First growth was evident to me uh, growing up. And now I can see all the way to whatever number there is, might be sixth or seventh growth and a complex city, but um, a rather simple one in other regards, socially complex and geographically rather simple. Um, And then family, um, immigrant Italian family. I was born here, born in Los Angeles, tying family to the city and starting to think about the city which you didn't growing up. You was you had a, a neighborhood, which our neighborhood ran from um, East Overlake Drive all the way to Western Avenue in Los Angeles, and then as far south as we were able to go, Beverly Boulevard, all the way up to the Griffith Park, Park Observatory. So the we, we we understood the whole geography, you know, foothills, mountains becoming foothills, um, flatlands. Plains of Id. In the density was different uh, than, yeah. I suppose. Yeah, I, would, well, I had, I, I had um, been taken, I traveled with my mother and my father two different times to New York City, once at four years old and once a little bit older. Um, and not really knowing anything other than just everything was closer together, everything was more dense. It took a lot of work to put on all those clothes and then try to go out and play and then come back in. Uh, the house and take off all those clothes, among other things. But anyways, and it wasn't saying I didn't like doing it. It just gave me an extreme comparison. And then uh, Cyark. Cyark is, uh, there are certain things that are influential because they serve as a model more than a force. And uh, for many of us, the great gift of our lives, besides the people we love the most, is being able to not just make a drawing, not just make a model, not just make a building, but to, as a collective, make a school. It's interesting that um, you were just talking about your family, immigrant backgrounds, and growing up in Los Angeles. 
And your next point where immediately you included Cyarch is if, for me, it was a similar thing too. It's just kind of a, a kickstart of one's growth, Cyarch. Is that how Cyarch comes the, in? The first thing um, I was mentioning a moment ago when my father, he, I asked him once why he left the main body of the family in the East and came to Los Angeles. And without hesitation, he says, my father spoke very directly, very simply, not very often. But when he said things, they didn't resonate at the time, but they stuck with, they stick. Can you do your father's accent? I can't, but I'm not going to. (laughs) Please do. (laughs) He may pop out. Okay, later. I can do his Italian Italian gestures, (laughs) which you can't see on tape. When asked why you came to Los Angeles, he said, because I wanted to live in America. And I said, was it New York American? He says, no, it was like the old country. I said, explain that to me. And he said, in the old country, from the day you're born till the day you die, you, wherever you sit at the table remains the same. You never change your seat at the table. And that sets up all of the relationships and the hierarchies of those relationships. Uh, and, and then outside the house, because it enters your psyche. He said, when he got excited about coming to America, being the last and the youngest of all of the children. He stayed back to take care of his father and chef for his father primarily. That's where my father learned how to be a chef. He comes to America and he says he had the same seat at the table in the new country that he had in the old country. And he was shocked by that. And he decided that immediately he's going to get in a car and come to the coast because the West Coast was where uh, you can invent a life. You can get a new seat, maybe? Yeah. Well, I never thought about it until he told me the story. Uh, I was probably at midlife. Is that we always sat down in whatever seats were convenient to us. It might be convenience because of a conversation, convenience because you were, you know, already sitting. And uh, I went back to visit my mother's family. I was back. I was back east, and I went to visit my mother's family on a trip. And I sat down wherever it was convenient. And nobody else sat down until my uncle came over and asked me if I could move my seat. And as soon as I moved my seat, I realized that was the same seat that I had when I was four years old. There you go. And one of the things that is important to me in teaching is to try to help the uh, younger ones see that there's not only great value in past experiences, but that's the cannon fodder of creativity. Because anything I talk about here, like I just immediately popped into my head that I could have uh, started talking about the conceptual structure of uh, family relationships and how that becomes a network and then the network becomes a da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. So you, you start with some everyday experience and the same way you pick up a Nautilus and you turn it into the golden ratio. You know, you start with something very tangible and in front of you, experiential, and then you bring it back out. I mean, even that was another realization, because in college, when, as, soon as, as soon as I started studying architecture, um, I didn't realize until 20, 20 years later, 25 years later, that uh, I was actually operating disembodied. Uh, I was, it, was, it was an intellectual pursuit, and I, I don't mean that in, in a bad way. It's just that you reach a point in your life where you're, you're proposing integration in a whole variety of ways, in buildings, in cities. Um, ecology is about uh, about unity. What are the things you teach in architecture school? Specifically, I, I, I teach uh, design studio thesis students, undergraduate thesis students, and then um, 
lecture course once a year. But I meant it um, uh, in principle. What do in you principle, teach? what do you teach? We were having a conversation yesterday about how to manage people you don't want to talk to, and um, the way I used to do it. And I haven't done it in a while, but you misunderstand what they're talking about, and you take it in a whole other direction, which frustrates them. And then finally, exasperated, they leave. Um, we'll do that later. We'll do that later. We'll do that later. You know, knowledge, skill, and values is are the three main categories. Uh, um, whatever field you're in, you have to know as much about it as possible. And it's not merely to just know it. It's to look for, which is what I discovered with, with um, Bucky Fuller, first principles or as close to first principles as possible. By the time you get out to commentary or 10th layer of principles, it's, you know, it, the, the knowledge is just way out there. It's just too much. Do you think, do you think this triptych, uh, knowledge, skill, and values, are thought in architecture schools, they made their way into normal curriculum? Uh, around you teach in more than one place you teach in Arizona and sometimes in Texas I think what's missed what's often missed uh, and I see this as one of the inadvertent successes of SciArc because um, all of the credit that we're given for conceiving of something it's like you know if Thomas Jefferson were alive today and you say well great job man say like, well I didn't know you guys were going to do that yeah the fact that something still lives and is still vital is uh, what what really gives me great happiness, actually. You have to know as much as possible about your field and try to get it down to the essentials or first principles, as I mentioned, watching Bucky Fuller. And then the distance in between all of those principles is very short. So you're basically connecting dots. You're connecting dots. There's a number of sidebars that have to be taught. Like when you get into uh, uh, knowledge, you have to figure out how to manage your time, how to focus. So it's not just about the theory and the methodologies and the operational procedures and all of that. It has to do with, uh, no, how, do you, how do you, is it possible for students to begin thinking about what life they want to invent for themselves while they're still in school? Is that when the values part come in? Because yeah. this, I, I can see knowledge and skill is always the uh, cornerstones of any education, specifically uh, architecture, but there's also arguments around the the third one, the values, which is uh, conceptually encompasses to uh, a lot bigger area. Having, yeah, I, I realize uh, now that having values, um, and then we there's discussion about what values are, and big debates in every field. But when you have um, uh, values you can edit out your choices. And nowadays there are so many choices. So you have to be able to discern what, it, what makes sense to you in the context of what, who you are and what you're doing. It's, it's, and that's not easy. That's not easy. That's, that's a difficult aspect of uh, teaching. And those are the kinds of things that you learn unexpectedly. So you have to create an atmosphere. You have to create, um, just, yeah, you have, you have to create the conditions to try to bring out what you consider to be the best in people. And that happens at, a, at an intimate relationship as well as uh, leadership relationships. And uh, you know, it becomes more difficult because there's a lot of moving parts the more people you have. But when you're dealing one-on-one, -on -one, as I know, being with an extraordinary lady who's very strong-willed and has, moves a lot faster than me, um, you learn how to work at variable speed and still keep your 
core principles intact. And so the values, um, the one metric, there always has to be a metric in architecture. If there's no metric, we get nervous. I don't get nervous, but you always hear, whoa, what's the metric for emotions? You know, uh, cognition. Anyways, um, which is, there is a metric for emotions now. Uh, it used to be called emotional intelligence, and now it's... it's is there a data for it? <laughs> as soon as you put cognition or cognitive uh, with any word, it, it's, uh, it makes people less nervous. Um, but yeah, there is a metric for it now. But the first thing that I would like students to try to answer is, uh, what is their worldview? What is their own cosmology? What is the... And you can start by just looking at what, what, what type of family did you grow up in? What was the... the fa what, was the, what, what, what were the traditions... And this is something that, yeah, what were the traditions that you grew up with? And then uh, recognize what they are, see how you want to jump around them or jump over them or transform them at this point in time uh, so that you can be more inventive. And then start to figure out how do you begin to use those traditions in a, in a, in a more, let's say, experimental way. So you have to conceptualize it. So in a way, conceptually, what you just described, the turning the architectural school learning from the usual cut, glue up, create the object, make things to more of a experience the life and learn the architecture of life rather than uh, the architecture of the object. It's all of that, you know, the life you choose and then the place you decide you're going to pursue it. Some places don't expect much and then there's other places that expect a lot. And I think Cyark, the one thing, uh, we always expect a lot of ourselves, but now there's a lot that's it's probably too much sometimes expected of students. You know, the intensity of work and the hours of work, it doesn't matter how many times it's chopped up with curriculum. There's people that just would be working no matter what. The difficulty is that the more you chop it up, the less thinking the student has to do. The less chopped up a curriculum is, the, and the more continuity there is, it's possible to, to, to loosen the reins a bit, to not make everything a procedure, that you actually have to take leaps of faith, that there's periods of pause and reflection. So, yeah, so it's, it's a community. It's a community plus, it, on the other hand, it's a production machine. And uh, the community part determines the character of production. It determines what orientation give that, that production. And... Inside of us, the two things that motivate us are, are fear and love. Love being compassion, not uh, and joy. Everything falls into those, under all, our, all of our, our behavior can be categorized under those two things. And uh, the moment of joy is the creative moment. So how do you prolong that? How do you prolong that? And the continuity of the how do you program. Keep the fear, how do you keep the fear real in terms of people understanding <clears throat> what the consequences are for decisions that they're making, but not overwhelming? In 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 Sciart, do you think this? Uh... And then part part of part of the community, the one thing that became clear to me, watching it go from Sciart go from just a bunch of people that the only thing we had in common was that we were on the same lifeboat together, and then you start to see with some people uh, a deeper uh, reason for hanging out with them. I, I was in the same submarine you were. with my sire. Uh, you were, yeah, you were. You had to be on more water than us. <laughs> I was under the water most of the time. We were, we were putting more holes in the boat. But anyways, it, just to see how um, a city like Los Angeles organizes and reorganizes and to see how a lot of individuals come together and 
ultimately form into a mini society and with all of the, the dynamics that are in any society and then managing it that way. When you, you're able to understand, especially with a place that has such a diversity of people like Los Angeles and Syrac having such a diversity of people coming from all over the world with a diversity of interests, not just that ethnicity, it's an opportunity to create a, a world that gets closer to the ideal that you long for in your projects in the outer world. In, in our conversations uh, outside of the education, usually uh, one thing comes up a lot is the hybridity of a lot of things coming together, give and take. Um, there is a, a certain direction architecture is going to. It's no longer bound to the traditional methods of, let's say, making a building and more towards to encompassing other things in it, mixture of things. You know, you have, you have people, then you have environments, then you have different things happening in those environments. I guess, can you talk about a little bit, how, because you're someone that works a lot with that uh, kind of give and take and uh, interactivity between the things, anything from behaviors to spatial uh, interactivity and mixture. Can you talk about that a um, little bit, like a hybrid spaces, for example, you bring it up in your studios? What are we encouraging here? What are we exploring or experimenting with? We've been speaking about, uh, from, for, I don't know, last 10 years, convergence. We also simultaneously talk about integration. And integration is used both as a, a social proposition as well as a, a technological one. I think beyond that is I think of things um, categorically and sequentially as a way of being able to understand as understand it in my own terms. So convergence is when things come together. Integration is when they're looking to establish the rules of engagement. And, uh, and then there's hybridity. Uh, integration, as we've always, as I grew up with it as, a, as a, uh, a model for immigration, as a social model, it was that everything had to become the same. People had to speak the same language. They had to have the same habits. Uh, basically, everything became the same. And as soon as you realize that, you understand that in physics, they would call that no more extremes. Everything becomes the same temperature. And when you have the same temperature, you have no more energy, no more work. Everything dies. Heat, death of the universe. So I started thinking that that's, that, that, that's not only a physical uh, fact. Entropy is also... Uh, in every, Entropy is basically conceptual as, as well as material. Hybridity popped into my head when a physics friend of mine... Uh, who I would ask questions to and he would answer me was better than Google. I would say, is there anything in nature that you could describe to me where two things become one thing, but then they don't lose their identity? You know, because that's the, that's, the, that's the struggle when you're growing up in a family. You know, you have identity crisis. I don't think they're crisis. I think it's, it's a biological necessity and an evolutionary imperative to what we call the terrible twos are not the terrible twos. It's, they're terrible for the parents because the parents don't understand that the, that, that the kid is trying to figure out how to manage without any backstory uh, starting to become self-conscious, you know? Anyways, that's, that's, another, that's another issue. So I asked him, uh, and he answers me, he said, uh, photons. When, 
photons, I should put a, a, a disclaimer. I never let the facts get in the way of my imagination. So when I remember things, they're the way I, I need to remember them. So this might be a metaphor, if not a fact. When the photons move into each other's field of interference, and I said, oh, field of interference. So they don't crash into each other. And, I, and he says, no, field of interference. And I'm thinking of my sister and my brother, you know. They have enough distance in between them where they can feel the vibration, but they don't engage totally. But he said that in that, that field of communication, as the photons move into each other's, they, they superimpose, light comes out. That's what creates light. And he says, now they keep moving and they remain integral in and of themselves. So they didn't change physically, but they have a memory of that prior experience which makes their next engagement more efficient. And that just opened up a whole area of thinking about everything remains the same when it comes together. There's a certain kind of exchange so that the, the, the creative task is to figure out the segue between one thing and another, to figure out what that relationship could be. So instead of making the things, you're trying to create the conditions for those things to actually begin to so the studying of the context becomes a, a supreme kind of a subject. Yeah. And the subject of the context yeah. becomes a, a driving force in architecture. Yeah, so you become interested in processes, and the processes are tangible ones. How do you get from a lava flow back to a forest once it was a forest? You know, so there's a constant. Um, they're tra you, you look at transformative processes. You look at anything that's always changing as, as a model. Now, back to the school, it's possible to use an institution not only as a role model. I think that's that. Anyways, you can use a school as a role model, but you could also have an institution behave accordingly, however you want the students to behave and to become. So is the school open-minded? Is the school creative? Is the school t still taking chances? Is the school, et cetera. All the things that you would expect of your children, you, you should expect of yourself. Speaking of schools, um, I remember in early 90s, I suppose, that when Ray Cappy kind of left SciArc directorship and you became the director, in my opinion, it was the most difficult one to taking the school from what it was in a small warehouse in Santa Monica to rather bigger world stage. And you have accomplished it. You were the second director. And can you kind of give us a little bit of description of it, uh, or the picture of it, I should say, that how it was, how that became a reality, and what was your experience as the second director of SciArc? You just kind of a few years prior to that, you were a student, and then you became the director of this world-class institution that it is now. So it's going back to institution and setting up the tones of that institution and uh, the goals of that institution or the route of that institution. Usually the difficulty of, of uh, leadership positions is uh, managing human resources, as they say. And uh, I saw that actually as, as part of the fun of it all. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that I, there were times that I didn't really get upset at my behavior or other people's behavior. But I grew up in a family that, that had anywhere from like eight to 15 people moving around all the time and uh, in a rather unpredictable manner, even though you knew what the rules of engagement were. So you had this, I had this in my mind, 
What I mind to come up with, Ray said, uh, level up, take the school someplace. So uh, we were coming of age at the time. Uh, Tom and Eric and I were coming of age, as, as were others, but Tom and Eric and I were coming of age. At the same time, the city was coming of age, and that's when Cyric was born. And so working on our, ourselves, working on our projects, we were coming of age, working on ourselves, working on our projects, uh, working on the city and working on the school were all connected to each other. So it was, the ideas became manifest. The, the values, the deep-seated values that, that were at the core of, of certain ideas, uh, we were able to manifest and test out. It wasn't even manifest. We were able to test them out in, in different venues. But for me, Cyark, in, in retrospect, seemed that Ray was, was uh, he, had an, he always had an intuition. Ray had a wonderful intuition about the, the relationship between structure and freedom, how much room to give the kids and when to bop them on the head, you know, and uh, he was good at that. And he also was uh, an extremely uh, moral man. Uh, in my experience, others always argue, say, oh, no, that person wasn't like that. Uh, I learned early on that you, the basis for your relationships are the basis for your direct contact with somebody, not what somebody else says, because uh, variables don't always work out in the same way with different people. But Ray gave me authority for doing things. And then I would always say, because I'd say this to my mother, I'd say, okay, you give me the authority. Now you can't overrule me just because you don't like it. And my mother would say, no. And Ray said, yes. He always said, yes. And whenever we got to that moment where he was upset about something, it was something emotional for him sometimes. And that was the worst kind. Like, I don't like the architecture you guys are doing, you know, or something like that. You're like Aldo Rossi. Yeah, you're like Aldo Rossi. <laughs> <laughs> and we, we would look at it, so, so, what's your point? so what's your point, you know? I, I mean, want to be Aldo Rossi. No, it's not even trying to be anybody. It's like you're trying to be, you know, it's like when you learn rock and roll, you're, you're probably every band, you know, you save Led Zeppelin for last or something, you know. But you work your way through. I mean, what we didn't have in Los Angeles was any sense of order, let alone a concept for it. And so all of a sudden you see repetition uh, running for miles and you get excited because you know that in that repetition, you're gonna find all kinds of other stuff. That just serves as a datum for letting other things go crazy, you know? And uh, we longed for that. that. That's what the line was, or now it's the gesture. You, get, you, have, you basically scale shift with gestures. You have gestures that go through an entire site, then they go through the building, and then they go through sort of the local conditions within that building. And then you work it through from an organizational strategy to an architectural strategy and proposition, all of that. Which incidentally is what you're trying to teach students is how to think through a problem in every direction simultaneously. And that's, that, that kind of teaching is how do you get somebody that stays on the line but then can also move laterally? You know, it's the old catcher or, or uh, in the heart of darkness issue, you know, apocalypse now. you got a river, and then that's all the side stories that you always bring it back to that river. And that's where the architectural line occurs, the center line of gravity within yourself, the center line of gravity through a project, you know. Yeah, one thing I remember from your time as a director in SciArc that, I mean... Oh, this we didn't finish on that answer, did we? Well, we're just going to continue later, and uh, I'm going to uh, bring this other thing. This is where it might become a game, because I'm now I'm interested in seeing how long I can frustrate him. <laughs> <laughs> but you know I don't get frustrated. I know. I'm waiting for the moment where your fists go, <laughs> damn it, will you just shut up? 
I, okay. Uh, okay. Back to your question. Okay. So I'm doing it right now. In, um, I mean, it was always in the in the. We're talking about SIAC and uh, visa vis. We're going to also addressing certain issues in architectural education at this point. One of the things that attracted me to SIAC in 1978 when I came in was its multidisciplinary approach. There was all kinds of people. There were homeless people actually in school living there with the students. And there were musicians, there were filmmakers, uh, clothing designers, and these are the early days of SIAC. And then you became a director, and I was kind of uh, looking at this from the outside, and you further that SIAC structure, as to say, you brought in people that would normally uh, shy away from teaching architecture. You brought them, uh, especially I had a conversation with Mike Davis, the urban writer, and you asked him to teach. And he said, Michael, I don't know anything about architecture. And you said, that's okay. Architects are dime a dozen. You teach Los Angeles. And he told me this in the interview I had with him. And he was quite fascinated with it. And uh, that was his invitation by you to SIAC. And by doing that so like that, you opened up school further into multidisciplinary thinking and kind of engage other, other things in architecture. And fast forward maybe 20, 25 years, I heard you saying someday that getting accepted to architecture schools should be no longer a sort of selective process, but anybody in any university studying anything could enroll in architectural courses. If I didn't hear you wrong, that's what I have thought about it. And I thought that's sort of a revolutionary thinking about bringing architecture schools to that level. Right now, it's a very isolated institution by itself, the, the architecture school. You know, this office that we're sitting in, I think, is an, an exceptional example and a model uh, for others that would wish to do the same thing. There are many ways to practice. The architectural education incorporates the arts, the sciences, and humanities. And within each of those, you can spin off and become more particular. Um, but it, 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 at its potential, it, it presents all three of those to us. But then at its potential, you can practice as a hybrid of those three things, where a, a project is a pretext for all the relationships that you could set up, social as well as aesthetic, uh, and a window into Wonderland that you can look at all this stuff. But over the years, what, 25, 30 years ago, architecture became the focus of people that were coming out of interdisciplinary programs as post-structuralists. Critical theory came out of these people that went from the classics to French psychoanalysis, mm -hmm. you know. And that combination was like fusion, fusion cooking in Los Angeles when Japanese meant French. Seems like anything meets French ramps up on something. Uh, I, I used to own a Peugeot. I, I would never buy another I French remember car. your Peugeot, blue yeah. one. i never buy a French car again. Good with theory, not good with cars. Architecture has brought lots of different people to it, to use it as uh, in every way, basically, not just to practice. And we still see them as a, a kind of intellectual food source for us. It's clear to me now that 
it was it was very clear to me with the the downturn in the economy which affected a lot of people's lives the downside was that it it was uh, disruptive the upside is that there was a diaspora of young graduates in places they would have never been and i saw that as a great benefit uh, to the world it might be disconcerting for some of them but it might also get people to realize that there are many ways to use the education and that architecture is no longer a prof just a profession or just a discipline, but it's also a platform. It's also a platform, the same way law is a platform. Architecture is a platform. And then when I extended that from, from practice into education, I started, it, it came to me in what would seem to be an, uh, an arrogant moment, but it wasn't. I, I thought I was being very open-minded and unselfish. If I was the one who decided curriculum in all undergraduate programs in any university anywhere, I would make it an, some variation on an architectural curriculum and eliminate everything else until graduate school. They could bias the, the different subjects in any way, the knowledge areas they, they wanted to, but it was project-based. It was project-based education. that You didn't just talk about it, you had to figure out how to make something. So it was thinking and making. And that's the equation for the architecture of anything. There's theory and there's practice. There's knowledge and there's practice. That's very interesting because this is what the, um, lately the, the most contemporary thinking in public education is going to back to that idea of project-based teaching, education. Well, there's two aspects of it. It's project-based, but it's also cross-sector. Cross-sector is the one that I'm Why don't we dissolve the boundaries we know where the limits are of, of uh, different systems, you know, but to make it, it seems to me history is on the, as we say, history is on, on the side of young people always. When you look at the trajectories, if you look at the work habits and the work plans of young people, the stuff that they have to do in school is not the most interesting part of their day. The stuff that they do outside of school is probably the most interesting part of their day or the same thing at work. How do you begin to cross-pollinate the platforms? How do you begin to figure out how do you make not being at, in school as rigorous in some ways, uh, and as you're, still in a, you're still in a pedagogical mode, uh, learning mode, how do you keep that as interesting, or let's say as rigorous as it is in school, intellectually? But at the same time, how do you take the fun that you're having outside of school and bring it into school? And the fun isn't just laughter, the fun is being on a treasure hunt. The fun is playing video games. Critical thinking. It's critical thinking. As you're always trying to figure out, you're MacGyver at every scale and in every arena. That you're, you're MacGyver intellectually, you're MacGyver emotionally, you're MacGyver even writing code, scripting, scripting the software you're using. The, 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 the one thing that's happening right now, and, and there's very many paying attention to it, but more and more the software that we use already has many of the decisions that we used to make ourselves. Texture mapping, for instance. Like a student will put a texture map on a building and it'll be the wrong scale. The bricks will be, instead of like little bricks, uh, and then you ask them, you say, oh, wow, that's an interesting idea. Your bricks are actually uh, 12 inches high instead of four inches high. And they say, well, what do you mean? And then you tell them. And they say, well, how'd you know that? And I said, well, I got a calibrated eye, but you could tell that when you put a person up next to it. And they go, oh yeah, I see it now. I, I think Paul have a point what you're talking about brings up uh, an interesting um, issue that my wife and I have been really focused lately on early childhood education because our, our children are young children. 
And what we've become quite firm in believing is that the way that that young children are being taught right now is being influenced a lot by by things like standardized testing uh, and overexcitement for new technology. And you know the children are losing out on an opportunity to develop a stronger foundation for learning. How do you think this type of early childhood education might be translated into the beginning of architectural education? And do you think that students these days are being taught with too much emphasis on new technology? Like as, as you were just describing, a lot of this software comes with rules built in. Do you feel like that's holding back students from kind of reaching their potential? Yes. Incidentally, we started an uh, early childhood program at SciArc in, uh, I think, 1990? 19, no, maybe before that, 89. The objective was to use the architectural tools to teach general education. So the student would read a story, and then they'd be shown how to either videotape a little claymation thing, or they would be building a physical model of a, of a place. They were taught about gravity by having to make something and fly it like Tinkerbell to, across a, a string so that there was, they were experimenting, basically. Because that's what I learned watching my uh, son from, you know, from being born. But probably around two years old, I began to notice that I was projecting perhaps, but I began to notice that almost everything he did was a science experiment. Like he would pour salt on a table because he wanted to see what happened. And if he didn't get in trouble for that, then he would stare at it longer. And then he poured a glass of milk right next to that. And that's where you can really get in trouble. And he was totally surprised that it didn't make a cone like the salt. And that's when I started saying, wow, that's amazing. Doing everything for the first time. Is it possible as we get older to see things as if for the first time? Is it possible as we get older to make things without precondition like a child? Those are the things that you want to foster in children. You want to make it possible for them to take whatever's inside and bring it outside with as much facility as you can give them. And I think the computer's part of it, but I think using your hands is, is also, it's not just essential, it's not just a philosophical point. What was just discovered in the last uh, couple of years, maybe three years at Caltech and JPL, was all of the new hires that replaced the first generation of aerospace scientists and engineers because they were all hired about the same time. They generally all left about the same time. So a whole new batch were pretty, let's say for the most part, the students of all of these, these people. They were noticing that there was no real creative leaps of faith in any one of them, that they couldn't figure out that, yeah, oh, I know what you do for the, the, the Mars rover. Let's just put a bunch of beach balls around it and drop it to the planet. Never would something like that come out of creative analysis. There's no analytic tool that can give you the confidence to take that leap. Children lose that. They lose the confidence that they're born with. They lose the courage that is intrinsic. Children don't make mistakes. They can't make mistakes. The only time you can make a mistake is when you've done something before. So a child, early childhood education is, an, is a progressive parenting at its best. And I, this is what I saw from Ray, is what's the relationship? Where do you find equilibrium between structure and freedom? How do you let anybody experience, not just express, but how do, you, how do you, the moment of utter freedom. Utter freedom is when anything is unconditional. 
if you're on vacation, when you finish your last final in, in college for the year, that feels like an unconditional. But there has to be structure if there's going to be freedom. There can't be one or the other. Anarchists are wrong on that, and, and so are, are uh, totalitarian uh, people. What they're discovering now also in the genetic coding of the body, the genome, is exploration is chemically embedded in us. Because the question that was asked, how come, like other animals, as soon as you find a good food source and you're comfortable, you don't stay put? And humans cover the entire planet. And they said that 20% of the species has wanderlust gene in uh, wider open. Others stay put. The Caltech thing, JPL thing, which I think we've never really experienced at SciArc. There were some periods where people stopped using models, building with models for maybe a couple of years. And then it got too quiet. It got too quiet. It drove everybody nuts. Like thesis was too quiet because nobody was building physical models. And we said, what's wrong? This year is different. I don't know. Ah, shit, there's no models. When we were on Beethoven, did you go to, were you at Beethoven? Yeah. Yeah. What, were you there when Home Depot, before pre-Home Depot and post-Home Depot? Home Depot was there already. Ah, man. As soon as Home Depot moved in, models became almost full size. People were, I mean, we, I, had, I had the manager come over and see me and said, it's really wonderful that all your students were over there all the time, but it would be really good if they would bring the carts back. You know, they had the really big carts that you put sheets of material on. And so I asked Randall in the shop to make this into a ritual. And so Randall had this whole ceremony. And then there was like 34 carts that came out of the school and there was a parade. But when Home Depot came, uh, models got big again. The JPL guys, when they decided they wanted to figure out why it was they couldn't take creative leaps of faith like their predecessors, see if there's something genetic about it. Well, what they discovered when they brought it back, they isolated all the way down to all of these new hires. There are many of the new hires that had uh, self-admittedly least amount of, of uh, faith in the creative process, had grown up not using their hands. Their manual dexterity was limited. It's written, Antonio Damasio uh, writes that, speculates that he's got metric behind it. The fingertips of the brain are essential to uh, creativity, that our neural network, we're wired for our imagination to unfold at the speed at which our hand moves. And the computer, compu computer has a whole other time structure, and it has a different, a different sequencing, different durations. We've not yet been able to reconcile slow and fast. And that's what, that's what I think in, early, in childhood, I think you have to have downtime as well. You know, reflection and learning are connected to each other. Yeah, Johnny Ivey, the industrial designer at Apple, of course, um, recently commented that the current state of design education, he was referring to industrial design, is uh, I believe the word he used was abysmal. Because he said that when they interview designers at Apple, very few of them have any experience uh, building anything with their hands. Uh, and he sees this as a huge problem uh, just for the direction of, of uh, design education. Do you see this as a problem in architecture as well? There's, there's a lag time between all the different creative practices, uh, but whatever comes up first in one is definitely going to come up in another. Yeah, it's, it's currently a problem. 
it's it's a problem not to lament, but it's a problem to focus on the same way you focus on the problems in your creative work in order to improve it. And we're with the consciousness that our species has, that's what we're here for. We're we're Norton utilities, basically. And we're Norton utilities for ourselves. Sometimes things uh, go sideways and you have to figure out how to, or they become deductive and we have to figure out how to open it up again. How do you keep all your body parts working? That's a healthy human being. That's a healthy human being. And I think in architecture, each of the media that we use shows us something else about the project we're working on. So if you're working in, in uh, if you're not working with your hands, uh, it's limiting. It's limiting. Education has to radically change, and it's going to happen uh, either through revolution or the evolution in big chunks starts to happen. Uh, right now, it's still structured in every way in the 18th century and 19th century, all the periods of big immigration. In order to have a workforce that could read the manuals to build the machines that produce the automobiles, you need to have people that can read and write. And if you go up a level into management, you have to have people that are um, beyond just a basic knowledge. They have to have some intelligence. School has kind of stayed there because the objective was to standardize the education in order to make sure that the same way you mass produce parts, the same part's going to fit the next time. Times are different. There's lots of change configuration that you're supposed to fit into, and, and people are expressing themselves in a more robust way, so their, their edges aren't, don't have the same profiles. So it's not about making things fit or changing the shape of that. All systems have to have a mechanism to constantly change. What's the biggest resistant, uh, resistance to that change? Our fear of change, yeah. keeping things the same. It's us. We slow things down. And I'm saying that that's a bad thing. It's important to slow things down sometimes uh, because we're moving way too fast. Even getting sick, getting sick is, is a way your body just says, okay, I've had enough. We're going to take a nap for a few days here. You know, and then I often think, geez, it'd be great to take a nap when I'm not sick, you know, but I don't. It's pacing yourself, huh? You can use pacing uh, in your daily life. You can use pacing for a city. You can use pacing for the amount, the amount of the quantity of, of, of money and resources and the speed at which it's all moving as it did through Dubai. And then you got an example that when you move at any extreme, the burn rate is higher and you hit the end sooner. And, and, it's, and, and then there's a lot of downtime in between where the initial end is and where the actual end would have been if you had paced yourself and the resources. So that's always a problem. We're, we're brats. We're brats. And so the, the biggest problem of all, I think from, from the time your early childhood uh, and constantly until you die, is self-discipline. And self-discipline to keep yourself healthy and whole, but with the expectation that if you're healthy and whole, so is the rest of the world, so that you begin to see that there's not only the necessity to be, to, to take care of yourself indi individually, but you have a greater responsibility uh, uh, communally. And so you let the altruism come out. We're wired for both. We're encoded for both. We're scripted for both. And growing up in Los Angeles, I saw altruism as often as I saw an earthquake, as often as I saw a fire and a mudslide. You see altruism. We saw altruism on, on the World Trade Center. And then, God, who starts fighting first? The policemen and the firemen. They're, supposed, they're not supposed to fight. You're supposed to have other people. You're supposed to have the gangsters fight, you know, not them. 
And then you wonder, why is it that we can't be altruistic in the best of times? And is it possible to make a school that brings that out? Is it possible to make an architecture that brings that out? And then everything else is commentary. Everything else is commentary. Amelia, do you have a comment to make? And um... Yeah, a comment in the form of a question as well. Okay. Um, in trying to link back this concept of altruism off also with uh, the values you were speaking about earlier about cultivating this as much as you can in an academic or school institution, an individual who has, you compared it to this river through a heart of darkness, this individual who can return to a core set of values of sorts and a constant back and forth of opposition and conflict. How do you, in a school setting, but also just in any type of <laughs> professional existence, how do you maintain that that sense of self-motivated direction while also having that sense of altruism that allows everyone to collaborate through the means that they need to, when architecture has never been a solitary task. It's never been a solitary task? Or in the actual execution, that there'll always be oh, yeah. more people involved. Yeah. No, that's, uh, I mean, the wrestling matches, which I think is, is um, also going away, which is there's the hero, and then there's everybody else who helps the hero achieve. The current generation is likely to be designated the breakthrough generation for cooperative human beings. And it starts through social media. So you're, we're all kind of backing into it like the life of Brian, you know, or you are. But I think uh, things are open source, even if you pretend that they're not. The cooperation that occurs is, it's back to the future. It's what gave our sector of the species um, longer legs. It's what gave us the ability to move beyond just hunting and gathering was the social aspect of it. Um, the simple truth is the worst I can think about doing to someone else, I would not want them to do to me. The first rule is do unto others as you would have them do and be unto you. Everything else beyond that is coming from that source. Uh, it's that immediate. And altruism extends to that. You can scale up and say, my group of friends in relationship to another group of friends, my team in relationship to another, my school in relationship to another school. I saw the role of SIARC from day one as in relationship to other schools. And because of historical circumstance, we were able to do things that they weren't able to do. So I saw it as our responsibility to experiment with things and then offer it out to everyone else. And one of the ways we did that is by inviting people from other schools to come and teach there and teach without curriculum. They had to invent a curriculum on the spot. It didn't matter if it was a Getty Scholar. I didn't know Wolf Pricks. This was the first teaching job he ever had. I thought he was such a great guy that and a great architect that he'd been teaching his whole life. You gave him the, his first teaching job? I didn't know that until I lectured in <laughs> Vienna and he introduces me in Vienna uh, at, at, at a big lecture and all the Viennese are up front and I'm going, oh my God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get dry heaves here. You know? Anyways, he says that he began teaching at Sire and uh, I sort of went, all right. You know? I, was, I was proud of my judgment there. But it was just like, who do you want to hang out? If somebody puts a school in your charge, what do you think about Oh, man, I want to get all my friends here. I want to get all my friends here so we can all play together. All the classes you wished you would have had, but you never did. 
all the subjects you wished you would have been able to take, but you never could. You had Buddhist monks teaching architecture. Everything. And, 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 and then people would say, you're so generous with your time. What they didn't know is that I wanted to have meetings with them because I saw the entire school as a private tutorial for me. But everybody else would benefit from it. Your question, <laughs> which we got lost, Maybe, what did it start with? Well, just aligning back to a, an ethic of uh, coordination and everyone working together. How do you keep that in mind while also trying to instill these students with a there's core sense of their own values? There's ways of institutionalizing it. One of the ways was in the beginning, everybody had to help build a school and then keep the school clean and you know, all of that. Beyond that, for a number of years, the students were very involved in how the school was run. Nobody gets to vote. It's an executive uh, system. Um, but everybody, it's, 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 it's executive authority with parliamentary processes is the way SIRC is set up. So big decisions are supposed to wait until you hear the voice of the people, so to speak. Thank you so much for, for talking with us today. All right. We're back with Ken and Donna. How was everyone's week? Amelia, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Um, I had a very... I don't know if you want to call it Zen weekend, but I met with the world's preeminent snowflake physicist this oh, weekend. Oh man, that's so <laughs> cool! I know I started. I, I set a high bar. Um, <laughs> I'm I'm writing a piece for a friend's uh, science magazine that she's starting, and a father of a former elementary school colleague, <laughs> schoolmate, um, is the preeminent snowflake physicist. So now you know that exists and. He's a very nice guy, works at Caltech, and so I did a little interview profile with him this weekend, and hopefully I can send that out pretty soon, up in the upcoming months. It's very seasonal, as I understand, also, talking about snowflakes come December, even in Southern California. So is that, will that be on Arconnect at all, or is this for side work? Yeah. This is a side thing, although um, without, there is, I'll give away the architectural bent. So he was a consultant on the movie Frozen. And to get into, to talk with the Disney executives, he went to the, the uh, Disney headquarters in, or one of their offices in Burbank, which is actually shaped like Mickey's sorcerer hat from Fantasia. Mm -hmm. So yeah, Michael Graves. Oh, that's a, gra is that also a Graves building? Isn't it? Is it Michael Graves? This one is, this isn't um, a major headquarters. It's kind of just an office building off uh, in one of them in Burbank. Um, maybe it I is the major it one. Is. Oh, so so for let's for the sake of this, let's call it a Graves building. Okay. <laughs> um, so he got to be in the Graves building and and uh, sit in the hat and talk about snowflakes <laughs> with Disney executives. So there's the like one duck, the architectural uh, connection to this otherwise very much about crystal formation and material physics and other things that get manifested in snowflakes. Hmm. So yeah, that was a that was my, how I spent my weekend. But uh, Donna, what about you? What'd you do? Oh, uh, nothing so cool as uh, as snowflake fractals. Um, <laughs> I uh, uh, have been prepping for leaving town this week. I'm headed to Phoenix for Thanksgiving. Um, so I'll be gone for most of the week for the holiday with my family. I grew up in Phoenix. Actually, I grew up in Scottsdale. Um, so it's going home. My whole family still lives there. But um, my uh, my hope this trip is to get up to um, Arcosanti. I haven't been to Arcosanti since 1989, uh, 1990, spring of 1990. So it's been a long, long time. My husband is not such a big fan of sort of hippie commune notions. So he might not be so, yeah. so thrilled about going up to Arcosanti, but uh, I plan to take him along anyway, because the construction aspect of it is incredible. Really cool. And uh, otherwise just, yeah, eating turkey, drinking wine, cooking. That's it. That's, <laughs> that's my big plan. Nice. 
Ken, how about you? Uh, well, I finished my first week in my new job, so that's been kind of the focus on that. And uh, the Butchers made their Kickstarter campaign. They succeeded in raising their funds, so hopefully there's a next chapter nice. on that. Yeah. Yeah. Congrats. Yeah. So I have to meet with them this weekend and get them to sign the contract so we actually have something to work from. Um, and that would be a lesson to the uh, architects listening or future architects listening. Don't do any work until you get a signed contract. <laughs> that's right. That's, right. that's been really hard for me because I've this has kind of been my first one and I've been kind of tampering on the edge and kind of working around the edges of it. Just trying to, you know, get things in place so that once I get the go ahead, I can just move ahead and start working on the project. But it's really it's. I've seen this happen before and I just don't want to be a part of that. I don't want to get too invested in it that uh, I can't walk away from it if they don't sign something. So when I started my uh, practice with my former partner, still best friends, we're, we parted very amicably, but we just dissolved our firm a few years ago when the recession hit. The first thing my former boss said to me when I mentioned, OK, I'm going to go into business with a friend was get it all in writing, like right away before, even though it's your best friend, get everything in writing. And of course, I didn't follow that advice, but <laughs> um, it is good advice. You really do need to. Um, yeah, it's 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 business. You have to have a formalized relationship. Yeah, and I think what's weird about what's weird about it, I think it's difficult for most people, and it was difficult for me, is that you're thinking that anytime you have to put something in writing, you're automatically on contentious ground. That there's going to be some kind of, and I what I found even dealing with my former employer that. It was such an easy thing to do. And I was building up this whole nightmare scenario that this is going to go bad and this is not going to work out. I'm going to be burning bridges. And it just didn't work out that way. And and uh, I completely agree with Donna is just make sure that, you know, it's easy enough to do. And it really you find out who you're dealing with right up front if they want to putting up a resistance to it. So that's the kind that's what's so great about it is that your fears can't ever be really your fears are only realized if you don't follow through with getting things in writing because right. you don't know what kind of person you're dealing with if you don't deal with them honestly and dealing with the my former employer honestly and just saying we need to get this in writing it made it everything really um, quite simple and it was there was no hard hard feelings on either side so so in, in that respect, that's going well, and I think I'm I'm really looking forward to my soup. Uh, no, what was this turkey thing about turkey? Something happening on Thursday? I don't know what that's about. Oh. <laughs> do the herbivorous butchers? They do, do a, turkey? a turkey. I missed out on that. Uh, they are all sold out of their turkey. So, <laughs> is it a is it a tofurkey? No, I. It's not. It's not tofu. They they hardly. There's no real soy in their product, which is so nice. Hmm. Yeah, and I and I saw a few movies this weekend, so I have to, you know, uh, heartily recommend Interstellar and uh, and Birdman. Ah, oh, yeah, oh, Birdman. Bird. Yeah, and and I both were, you know, I think Christopher Nolan has a really good understanding of architectural space. I think, and not just because of his last movie. I mean, his his certainly his last movie that he did. Um, I forget the the name escapes me at the moment, but uh, had some impact in this movie as well. It's very interesting how he dealt with space and um, not space, space, but um, architectural space. And uh, so that Inception? was. Inception? Yeah. Yeah, Inception. Same kind of um, when, uh, that the city was kind of folding on top, you know, folding. That same kind of thing was happening in this film as well. So that was very interesting. And 
um, Inaratu, the the director for Birdman, and his um, his vision for that film was just amazing. So I know you didn't want this to break down into uh, Cisco and Ebert, but I have to recommend those two films for us. <laughs> How about you, Paul? What's going on? I, I actually saw Interstellar last week, too, and I have to say that I did leave the theater with a fully blown mind. I, <laughs> I I had to suspend, you know, my portions of my brain a little bit with, you know, with the storyline. I, I don't think it, it was as strong as it could be, but I mean, just everything else made up for it, you know, tenfold. It was just it was a pretty amazing experience. I'm I'm a sucker for, you know, space travel films i you know i think it's it was interesting though you know i i think that you know a movie that is as contemporary as that movie is i mean just from a technical perspective i find it i find it pretty interesting how there's still so much direct inspiration taken from stanley Kubrick. yeah i mean it, 2001 was made in 1969 and it's still it still holds up today as as a source of inspiration for filmmakers that are that are producing projects like this uh Speaking of that, I noticed that this Friday there's a screening of 2001 Space Odyssey at the Egyptian Theater in in L.A., which I'm hoping to maybe escape from family Thanksgiving <laughs> duties to uh, to attend. We'll see. I probably it probably won't be worth it, but um, I mean, worth it in in terms of uh, you know of of uh, what I'll have to face when I come back from the theater. <laughs> but uh, yeah. Paul, do you think that's true also of Blade Runner, that every, you know, sort of post-apocalyptic future vision owes some debt to Blade Runner? Because I kind of feel like it, they do. Uh, definitely. I mean, look at, uh, I mean, if you look at, what's what's that development downtown near the Staples Center? LA Live. LA Live. I mean, LA Live looks like a straight up, you know, uh, direct interpretation of uh, Blade Runner <laughs> cityscapes. I mean, at a, you know, much less, you know, interesting kind of translation, but it's, uh, I mean, Blade Runner was also extremely influential, but yeah, I, I have a special place in my heart for Stanley Kubrick. So yeah. he's always, yeah. he's yeah. always my, my, uh, go-to filmmaker whenever I am looking for inspiration. What it was nice about this one is that I was thinking about Stanley Kubrick as well. And I thought that what, what 2001 didn't have this film had. And that was the, you know, I walked out of there feeling like every part of my psyche was hit, like plucked, you know, emotionally, (laughs) you know, spiritually, all of those things. (laughs) And, um, you know, it was interesting to see Matthew McConaughey play that role that he was in, in this movie because he was in that, that Carl Sagan, um, that movie about based on Carl Sagan's book. Oh, Contact. Contact. And he played just the opposite. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, which yeah. this movie had so many elements of, so many elements just from contact, almost taken directly, it seemed, uh, in Interstellar. But yeah, no, yeah. I, I agree with you, Ken, that like it's kind of a flipped yeah. uh, role that he played. And it's kind of strange to in in uh, one actor's lifetime to see that transition. Yeah, where he actually came around to see the, that science wasn't the only thing that mattered, that this this emotional connection was actually what was driving him. It was so... It was, it was really kind of uh, very, very, I was like, wow, that's so great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Carl the Sage would have been good to be around to see this movie. Yeah, I was also, um, another interesting thing I did last week, just jumping back to me, because, you know, I know everybody <laughs> just wants to go yeah. back to 
<laughs> Sorry, too. <laughs> um, I, I went to a, a conference in San Francisco last weekend or last last week. That was it was it was actually really interesting. It was called uh, it was it was run by Giga OM, which is a tech publication and research 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 outfit. Um, they had uh, the the topic of this conference was invisible design. It was called Roadmap, and they had a lot of interesting speakers. They had Eves uh, Bahar. K.K. Barrett, who's the production designer for a lot of movies, including Her, the movie Her. Philip Rosedale, the the, uh, the guy that founded uh, Second Life and now has this virtual reality startup called High Fidelity. But everybody was talking about how the uh, the kind of emerging importance of design in technology and and new business. And uh, there were a lot there was a lot of talk about how designers have in the last you know few years have really moved from, you know, occasionally getting invited to the big table with the executives to now like running the table and, you know, how a lot of new businesses these days are really successful because of the kind of, uh, visionary creatives behind, behind the companies. So, you know, even though a lot of the, this conference wasn't directly about architecture, it was, it was, uh, there, there was a lot of crossover, you know, to be seen in, in this industry. And, uh, going back to our discussion last week with Killian, just, you know, the importance of designers and architects in, in, uh, contemporary culture. So that was, I really enjoyed that, that conference. Sounds good. Sounds really cool. So should we, uh, should we start talking about the South? So this week, Clemson University announced the decision to scrap the plans for a new modern architecture center designed by Portland-based Allied Works. Uh, what unfolded on Arconnect, however, wasn't so much about this particular story. Uh, rather, it was a focus or debate about modern architecture within a historical context. Uh, Donna, you were the first to comment on this article by quoting this statement by one of the Charleston residents opposed to the new building. The reason that Charleston is so historically significant is because the neighborhood fabric is not broken up by modern buildings. You can look around and feel the colonial era or 19th century atmosphere. And uh, your comment to that was, uh, you mean the time when women and blacks were property? <laughs> Which I thought was, uh, you know, it was a very, very succinct yet uh, powerful <laughs> statement. Uh, do you want to uh, use this opportunity to elaborate on that? Sure. I, um... So I'm reminded of a uh, comment that um, Aaron Wren once made, the Urbanophile. You guys probably have heard of the Urbanophile blog. He's Aaron is a, a personal friend here in town, and he's excellent. Um, he made a, a comment once that a lot of small towns in Indiana are trying to sell themselves as having this great history. You know, we've got this great history that goes back to the frontier days. And he pointed out that, you know, every city has history that goes back to the frontier days because that's when those cities were started. And nobody has this very, very unique history, these little towns in Indiana that they're claiming. There are some cities that have a unique history, and I'd say Charleston is one of them architecturally. But in terms of the South and the relationship to the past that the South has and the, the racism and the, the, you know, it's not necessarily something that we need to be trying to relive. So whenever I hear people say, oh, it was, you know, everything was so genteel and lovely back then, I, I just immediately go to, yeah, women, blacks, you know, were property. If you weren't a landed, a landowner, you probably maybe couldn't vote or, or there were, there were, you know, it wasn't this pretty happy time that we all gloss it over to be. 
So I just kind of made that snarky comment. You know, obviously the building is a lost cause. It's been under, uh, it's been a, um, a topic for a long time. It was very controversial when they had the um, first round of approvals for it. The place was packed to standing room only. It, it's a very, very controversial building. And, you know, I think this time I, I'm not fighting for it to happen. I'm just kind of interested in looking at uh, why it came about this way. Is it controversial because it's modern or because of the uh, specific design of the building? What do you think about that? I think it's I think it's simply because it's modern. I do. I think it's um, you know anything anything contemporary in this setting. I think people would be upset about, and I think they will really the real historic preservation people there will really only be happy with something that looks historic, that looks faux historic, or that looks like um, I'm thinking about uh, uh, Bush the Bush Library by um, Richard Meyer. Like that's not really a historic building. It's a very contemporary building, but it it. It maintains a, a, the proportions and the some of the detailing of a historic structure. Ken, what do you think? So I, I don't really know a lot about Charleston. Um, I typically try to avoid the South. Um, I'm not a big fan of the <laughs> South. But uh, I, correct, do they drive cars down there? Or are they still driving horse and buggy down there? <laughs> I mean, do they have modern technology? Do they have lights? Are they using gas lamps? I mean, a car. I mean, just, I don't just a. Just a note to the Southerners, um, you can send your hate mail to uh, uh, podcast at arcanact.com. <laughs> no, I, I am I am not. Um, I don't like preservationists. I don't like rigidly. Well, I, I in the sense that I don't like anything rigidly adhered to these rigidly adhered to dogmas around preservationism or uh, these regional contextualism. I, I just think time will ultimately win this game that we're playing here. And it seems like a jet it's trying to be this genteel place. And like Donna said, there's a history here. And if I remember correctly, I think Charleston was basically bombed to the ground, I think during the civil war. So, I mean, there, what, what is original anymore to Charleston? I mean, all of this stuff was, you know, it has a, it doesn't have an original date to it because the origin was is somewhat cloudy in the fact that it was destroyed um rightfully so um so i don't well i was atlanta was the one that was really bombed completely well i know but um, charleston was another one i mean yes it was so i i i i really have a hard time with with the argument that um this building seems to really fit pretty well the way it was broken down it wasn't this massive it didn't read that way. The, it read as three distinct volumes to me. Um, I thought the 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 just the materiality, and especially when um, one of the posters posted a a mock up of the screen, it seemed really appropriate. Um, I, I thought it was actually quite an elegant solution to go in a different direction. And I think so, a couple of people pointed out that you know there to, to suggest that Charleston is this kind of very homogenous town where everything kind of relates to the, the, you know, to some, um, historic, some gen, uh, generally, um, accepted historical norm is not true. There's been other buildings that have been, um, that have been built there that don't, um, adhere to those rules and they fit quite well. And the question was, is that, well, something to the, the effect of if there are all these different things, how come they work so well together? Well, they work together now uh, in this in the fact that we have an opportunity to kind of view it through a different lens. 
And maybe a hundred years from now, this building would have fit in quite well, but we never, we would never, we, well, of course, we'll never know that. And that you can't prove that counterfactual, but it, it could have been a uh, hundred years from now, fit just as well as any of the other things that have been built there um, since the original buildings were built and that fit what quite well now. So I think it's really kind of asinine. <laughs> What I when I was trying to take a step back from this and not look at it so much from a southern contextual or historical perspective, but just look at it uh, from a legal perspective to say, okay, there was initial approval um, by the board that would review these historical preservation guidelines and historical, you know, how much it would mesh with the neighborhood, and it was initially approved, and then it was that decision was sued was under lawsuit by a couple of neighborhood groups and preservationist groups, so. In that respect, you can say, oh, yeah, this is like in some ways some type of, you know, legal course of action. It's a democracy in action of people who are, <laughs> whatever their position, um, fighting this building that they feel is somehow incongruous with the neighborhood. Do you think either Donna or Ken or Paul, maybe you have a concept on this, is is this something that is kind of an overall flaw of the whole system of how architecture gets reviewed for uh, finally being built? Is this is the system working as it is, even if it ends up being kind of a nasty or contentious product? Well, how, I mean, how can it? We put people in charge of boards. We we I don't know how these how these boards are typically formed, but there are experts put on them, or there are experts who run for them, or who get elected to them, or whatever. But we. We, we trust, we're supposed to trust in the people that we put in, in some position of power. I, I'm trying not to use power because I don't know if it's, it kind of gives it a whole different meaning. But we, we put these people in, in these positions to, to protect or to look after the built environment. And then when we don't like their decision, we have to sue. So the, I don't understand why even have these boards then if they're not, if you, if you can't trust them to do their job, then why have them in the first place? And it wasn't, you know, universally destroyed this building. This building was maybe the community didn't like, but it had some preservationists that, that thought this fit well within the context. It had, you know, the board of architects thought it fit quite well. So, I mean, these are pretty, these aren't just, these aren't lay people kind of saying this fits. These are, you know, these are people with some experience. I, I think that's absolutely right. And that that issue has come up in uh, Indianapolis recently with a Historic Preservation Commission decision that I made the point on a public forum that these are people who are invested and knowledgeable about the built environment. And, you know, they're smart people. That's why we put them in this position. But, Amelia, I wanted to go back to this, uh, the question of this on a bigger issue. I mean, it also relates in a bigger field. It also relates to the controversy over the Eisenhower Memorial in Washington, D.C., where Gary was hired Everyone who hired him and agreed to hire him knew what kind of architecture he makes. And then when he did that architecture, everyone got crazy and said, oh, this thing is too weird. It's not classical. It's, you know, the same thing happened here. Brad Klopfel of Allied Works was hired to do a piece of architecture that was very forward looking. I don't remember exactly what the term was, but it was a piece of architecture that is going to um, to get attention and to be uh, symbolic of a, of a looking to the future. And so that's what he did. And uh it was passed by one group and then a lawsuit comes up. So, you know, I've never felt democracy so fully realized as I have in zoning hearing committee meetings, you know, zoning hearings where, where you go and citizens are able to come and explain why they want to use this window versus that one. I think that's the democratic process in action. But there is a, a, 
I think, a, a real question with hiring someone specifically to do a job and then everyone turning around and saying, well, we don't like that. We don't like what you came up with. Um, and I have wondered if the opposite has ever happened. Has anyone proposed a classical building and somebody brought a lawsuit saying, well, that's too historic looking. We don't think that's <laughs> appropriate for this neighborhood. Has that ever happened? I wonder. Not to my knowledge. It would be kind of hilarious if they then got into splitting hairs over the very specific historical qualities of it. Oh, like that's that use of columns is inaccurate or, you know, <laughs> exactly, like exactly. the level, the level of uh, almost poetic license that goes into this is very strange. Like you can get away with some things, but just go one direction too far and it goes away. I think we have plenty of posters on the threads about about historic uh, preservation Thayer and Eek and others that, um, EKE, maybe it's EKE, not Eek, who would argue, and rightfully so, that if you're going to do classical design, it needs to be done well and properly. And I agree with that. If you're going to do it, then make it, make the proportions right. Make the, the, you know, don't combine Greek and Ionic and, and Doric and don't, you know, don't mix them all up. But I think their, their argument tends to be that if you're interested in beauty, ultimately there's some kind of universal truth in classical traditional designs that will always be appropriate, and I just don't agree with that. It's, it's I mean, the architecture that that architecture didn't even come from from. It's not even, even essentially American. I mean, so what? <laughs> what is? I don't understand the point. I mean, you know, we have a we have a very well trained American architect who's doing quintessentially American architecture. The most American architecture you could possibly have in a city that's supposed to represent something. And it, I think it could even be that he's from the Northwest. It could even be that he doesn't right. speak their language in, in the sense that he doesn't have their, you know, their Charleston charm and their his presence. You know, it could be that. It could be this just this interloper coming into our community and plopping down his, his so-called <laughs> Walmart or his alien spaceship. None of those things... You know, if you want to have an honest criticism about the building, then have an honest criticism about the building and talk about the merits of whether or not this building fits. But when the community comes in with their lay person speak, they just, you know, I hate to kind of drag this back to the kind of politics of where we are in this country. But when, you know, what people can't even tell you um, the reasons why we're going to war, and it's the same groups of people who are kind of using language they don't even understand. They're completely factually erroneous. I mean, it doesn't look like a Walmart. It never, I don't know where that even came from, but it was used to describe this, this building. And, and I'm a big fan of, of uh, Allied Works. And, and um, so I, it's, it's difficult for me to kind of figure out a way out of this problem, because I think America inherently, when we get our nationalistic kind of back or you know or we get straight we always go the we kind of revert to this past that was so quaint and so easy and so so like we long for and then we just kind of wash away we whitewash essentially all of the bad things about the past yeah and it you know i want i want to keep doing what donna did and just keep poking the eye in that and saying you know what well the past has subjugation of women has um, we have black men hanging from trees. We, you know, we have this whole culture exactly. that it's like you can't separate them. They are immediately embedded in the context of your of your architecture. Exactly. Paul, Amelia, Ken, and I have been venting. Do you guys have, have another? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I I kind of want to throw a, maybe a hypothetical out there. Uh, if there was a 
giant wave of social media activism devoted to counteracting the preservationist people who came out and apparently enough in high enough droves to drive the lawsuit forward. Is there, do you think there's any chance of this? I mean, it's totally speculative, but like, what kind of sway do you think uh, a counter lawsuit might have had in a, on a social media platform? If like, if that had come up as an actual activist movement that people had really taken seriously, what kind? Do you guys have any idea whether that would have helped at all? Do you think? I think everybody would be just preaching to the choir. You know, I think uh, it would be such different platforms for protest that. Uh, I don't think the messages would cross. You think the preservationist people have their Pony Express? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you, you said it. I, didn't. <laughs> I said it as a question. So <laughs> I'm just saying that they might not be on Twitter. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> well, it um, it does relate to the modern Oakwood situation, which was similar in in that there was a building that was approved. And the architect owner started building it, and then it was not approved after an appeal process that was considered to be a, a just a uh, formality. But I think in that case, the social media was a huge part of it. I think, um, you know, there was a story in the Atlantic. Was it the Atlantic? And the Times even, and the modern Oakwood house itself had a Twitter account on its own, which no one ever verified who actually was running that Twitter account, but it was hilarious. I loved it. I follow it. <laughs> You know, so in that case, I do feel like social media had a lot to do with public opinion and then maybe ultimately with the with the judge's opinion who decided that case. Now, it was also um, in that case, it was a building that was very close to being finished. I think that trying to rally support for something that still just exists on paper would be a whole lot harder in, you know, no matter how great Allied Works design is or maybe or it just would be a lot harder to get on board with um, something that just completely does not exist yet. And I, and I think if this had been a football stadium, we might have a different argument here. And I'm being slightly sarcastic in that. But this is a public institution. I think Clemson's a public institution. I could be wrong by that. But the politics, the Southern politics are like, are crazier than New Jersey politics. They are they they will cut you off at the knees and they will smile at you while you're doing it. Where in New Jersey, they will beat you over the head with a baseball bat and yell at you while they're doing it. So the, the, it's a very subtle politics exactly. that I think that exists down there where you can't – the powers and the forces that are, are at the – are that are acting are much b bigger than just that small group. I, even though it was a large group of people, it's still a small group of people. I think the larger forces outside of that really told Clemson all they needed to know that if you do this, stuff will happen. You know, uh, alumni will you know stop giving or you know something something having to do with money affected that decision and not. I, I think, not the public outcry. I think there was a larger force behind the scenes working this thing. And I think that's probably what killed it. But, you know, we have a stadium that's under construction right now here in Minnesota and neighborhood forces and all the all the public sentiment against the stadium. It's a small population of people that wanted that stadium. And most of them don't live in Minneapolis or in the Twin Cities. And they got that stadium, you know, like I said, it's being built. So that's what's frustrating about that. And I think you're probably right. We so frequently on the Architect forums, people bring up the fact that all architecture is political. There's always a political motivation or connection to every project that gets built. And so many people just don't know, and that's not true. You know, that doesn't really matter. It's all just about the building and the design. It's not. It's totally about the political connections and the society and community in which it's built. I mean, 
there are always those behind the scenes things happening um, for pretty much every project. Uh, it's kind of disheartening, actually. Um, I, I just I also wanted to point out that um, a, lo- a comment that happens frequently when something like this happens, and not just on Arconnect, but on like the public newspaper or whatever, the layperson speak, they always seem to think that architects don't have any kind of training in contextual response. And I just don't think that's true. I think that every school teaches something about context. And our understandings of a contextual response just happen to be much more sophisticated and educated than those of people who look at a Allied Works building and say it looks like a Walmart. You know, I mean, sorry, I'm being an elitist again, but um, there is the contextual response and appropriate contextualism is is taught in architecture school. Of course it is. And I think any architect would understand whether they were being responsive or not in their building. Um, yeah, I just I think that that's a part of education that we get that people seem to think we don't. That's a good point. Can I ask this one question? Because this is what's going through my head. What is the difference between what Donna called elitism, this elitism that stands over here on the modernist side, versus the elitism that thinks that preserving a history, preserving a, a fake history, it's a history that I don't care what anybody, anybody can call it whatever they want, but there's still car, like I said, there's still cars, there's still technology, a history that is not rigidly adhered to it in all aspects. Why isn't that an elitism as well? I mean, why is it only elitist when we say we like this type of building, we think it's appropriate for this context, and yet the other side is not being elitist by telling everybody else that they can only live in this kind of building, or the only thing that that should be built is, is this kind of regional contextualism. And I'm like, isn't that an elitist position as well? I mean, those aren't poor people that live in that town. That's a, that's a wealthy-ass <laughs> town. And so the money, the money on that's the money. Look, who won here? The college didn't win. The right wants to tell you and the, these contextualists and the preservationists will tell you that the little people won. Little people did not. Let's not mistake this for what it is. Little people did not win here. Nobody won. Here. <laughs> there was too moneyed interest going up. And the one who had the bigger wallet won this battle. Simple as that. You think it's a generational thing? Yeah. I mean, would this would this be would this protest be happening in uh, twenty years, or or you know, is it still this kind of uh, um, old old way of thinking, kind of stepping in and uh, kind of uh, just ignoring contemporary culture? All that's missing from this town is a Disney sign on it. That's all that's missing from this town. I think there's a <laughs> genteel. There's something very ingrained in that community that is so genteel and so in such a way that I think it's just completely fabricated. I think I, I just I just don't I don't buy it at all. I think at 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, I, I think it'll still be the same town it is now. You know, Paul, I recently a friend of mine here in town built a very contemporary house recently and just moved into it not long ago. And while it was under construction, I'm very good friends with the people who live right next to it. And we would go over there and I'd, we'd have a glass of wine and walk around their construction site. And my friend knows that we did this, so it's not a problem. <laughs> but we were over there one day and it was a construction site and there were foundations and there were big piles of dirt. And so, of course, there were neighborhood boys there playing and throwing rocks because that's what neighborhood boys do. And one of the neighborhood boys, I said, um, what do you think about this house? And he was probably 10 or 11 years old. And he said... I don't think it fits into the neighborhood. It's too modern. Hmm. And this was a sentence he had heard from his parents that he was just repeating back to me. I mean, that it was it was very clearly that was what was happening. So I'm hopeful that the next generation will like 
contemporary things. But I also think the next generation's hearing from their parents right now. I mean, I'm teaching my kids my values. Why would why would they not do the same? You know. Well, it would be nice to have a someone that could offer the alternative perspective in a easier to um, digest style of communication rather than a lot of what I'm seeing in the in the comments. Because you know, I think there is another there's another um, way to look at the issue of context um this not not necessarily addressing this particular uh story but um but i think it, you know it, it is a big it is a big topic that that uh deserves some more discussion does anybody else have any anything else to add to to this particular story well i'm hoping we get to the, the someday we get to the auschwitz 2 site because that's that's where this issue of you know, about preservation really is, is it, is a much more important issue, I think. And then these, these kinds of something about that issue that I started to think about in relation to this one, that is a, a whole other um, thing altogether, but it seems that that has a much broader context than, you know, uh, than this one does. So I, I, that's what I have on that. No, can I, I'd agree with you. I think that in this case, in particular, we have a proposed building that does not exist yet that is being shot down. Um, in the Auschwitz case, there's it's not to preserve an idea of homogeneity or an image that is being put into travel catalogs or so as been, contributes to some type of tourism industry, an image of a city overall. It's literal foundations that are being considered in preservation. And the same thing with the um, modern Oakwood House. It was very physical. You could look towards one specific structure and that was the crux of the debate. And the same thing with Auschwitz. This is more, <laughs> it's it's strange to kind of put all those three examples together, but this is much more about the image of a city or like this, what the city is trying to kind of market itself as and what whatever comes along to threaten that is shut down, it seems. And that's why I thought the Olsen Kundig building was interesting as well, because it starts talking about, you know, what are the nature of covenants and what you know, he seems to like to push that button, so I, I I think I like that. And it's maybe it's a little different than this one, but it just when I was thinking about a community saying what they didn't want, what they didn't want to have, and that what they have is completely abhorrent to generally m- most architects. And what Olson and Kundig had put on that ridge was such a minor um, intervention that you could hardly call it something that would blocking a view. Um, the way they were describing, it just seemed, um, at what point does the tyranny of the uh, the minority kind of, or this kind of tyranny of this kind of regional regionalism that is embedded in, in some of these places become just antithetical to what the nature of our country is supposed to be about, which is, you know, these great ideas and these people who are going after, um, you know, big things and, and creating these um, interesting things. I and mean, we don't seem to do that very well in this country. Everybody's talked about Venice and all these other cities that somehow managed to live there and create new architecture. And somehow it doesn't look like everything else and it fits, it works. And no one's pitching a fit about it there. Right. I think the thing with the Olsen Kundig house also is that was, it's much more a case of we're here now. So we want, we want to shut the door on any other development. Like I'm here now. I like the pretty view. I don't want anyone else to be able to come in and build here and destroy what I like. Where I think Amelia, you're right that in, in 
Charleston, it it is very much about a a city identity, maintaining a city identity that people don't that exists already that people don't want to change. I I just wanted to also point out because I I do kind of feel like I'm attacking the South and I have been a little bit on the thread. Um, I have extremely deep roots in the South, so I I do have an emotional connection to this. My family on both sides of my family goes way back in North Carolina to the point that my ancestors were slave owners. So yes, it's not something I'm super proud of, but it's something I have a really deep connection to. So I think about the South deeply. I'm not just tossing out there that I hate the South because of, you know, because I'm a Yankee. I'm not. I consider myself to have Southern roots that are very real. So I do feel like when I see the South say we don't like contemporary things, we like our old fashioned way of life. I see a real dark side to that personally. That's all. Thanks, Anna. I think your your personal experience is very much wrapped up in the overall American experience of people having very um, diffuse and conflicting inheritances that they have to deal with and that they want to encourage certain prides for certain things. But sometimes that pride involves picking and choosing elements from a historical era that is not known for how great it is <laughs> for certain people, but might be really nice to, uh, you know, make great gas lamps and you go to the yield candy candle making company and such, <laughs> stuff like that. But this is definitely a topic that we're not going to stop seeing. And uh, another uh, piece that came up on the site recently that gave got a lot of attention was the um, a, new, a piece from the New Yorker that Alexandra Lang wrote about um, how well, or kind of a checking in with social media and its ability to, um, play an activist role in architectural preservation. So I think that throughout the U.S. is always an interesting conversation of how we deal with these controversies, and we'll definitely keep an eye on it in the future. So I think we're going to come to the end now for this episode, though, of uh, just discussion topics. Does anyone have any final wrap-up thoughts that they'd like to add? I'd like to just um, talk about something that I'm kind of excited about. Uh, we have... A, a lawyer that will be joining us soon on the podcast. <laughs> and uh, he will be here to maybe every episode, maybe, maybe every, uh, every other episode, but he will be here to answer legal questions. So we need to start getting some questions sent to us so we can get a, a legal professional to, to give us some, some real answers regarding these because i think there's a lot of people playing playing uh lawyers in in the forum and uh, there always has been but uh <laughs> we're we're going to start getting some uh professional advice so look forward to that and that's send... awesome i think that's so awesome uh, right now there's a thread going on called what is an architect responsible when for when construction documents are stamped something like that and it, it's basically a pro practice question and, you know, I love pro-practice. I loved teaching pro-practice and I love talking about actual practice topics. But um, it's just so frustrating because there are so many of us who feel like we have legal answers, but so much of it relates to our state versus yes. nationwide. And <laughs> I, it's it's we need someone who can actually help us wade through some of this. So that's awesome. I'm excited about this. So, Paul, his experience is in this in uh, the construction area. Um, no, just in- uh, but um, but he. <laughs> He uh, he works at a, a large firm that pretty much uh, covers everything. So whatever he does not have direct uh, knowledge about, he's going to confer with his colleagues and give us give us the uh, the lowdown. So if people have questions, they should like call us and and like now and say, "Hey, 
I don't think he's advertising free legal advice. No, but. no, I mean, <laughs> but, no, we can't. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, that we might have to have some kind of disclaimer with uh, with him. But um, yeah, I mean, calling us and leaving us your legal questions is definitely a possibility. Our number is 213-784-7421. Not as easy to remember as some of the uh, the law firm uh, phone numbers on the back on the backs of buses that you see Better around L.A. Yeah. <laughs> Or you could, you know, you could tweet your questions to uh, hashtag Arconnect Sessions, send it to us by email to connect at Arconnect. We will get those, we'll, we'll put those together and and have some some juicy questions ready for our lawyer. Nice. Anything, uh, anything you guys are looking forward to or anything that stood out this week on Arconnect that you want to talk about before we end? So, uh, so a couple things. Uh, it seems like there's been a lot of interesting stuff going on lately. And one thing that I was intrigued by was Alexander Walter put up this post about the London's Garden Bridge, and it came very shortly on the heels of the um, new Island Auditorium Park thing going out off the coast, off Manhattan, uh, on the pier. And um, these are both examples of privately owned public spaces, of spaces that look to be public, but they actually aren't. So this bridge is something that you you have to get reservations if you want to cross it, and you're not allowed to ride a bike across it, and it, it'll be closed after eight o'clock at night. And I just, I think this whole question of publicly owned private space and what actually is private space is a really great one. And Killian talks a lot about it. He did last week a little bit. But it also then relates, interestingly, to my other favorite discussion this week and the best architecture news I've heard in a long time, which is that Renzo Piano will be designing the headquarters, the corporate head headquarters for the Come and Go, which is my favorite name ever for a convenience store. My, uh, I, Why? I, I, well, should I tell the story? I don't get it. What's so, what's so, what's so, <laughs> what's so fun about, about that name? Go? Everybody's talking about... <laughs> I'm just joking. <laughs> so um, I tell a story in the in the comment sections about my mother and how she told me the name of the store. I had never heard it before. And my mother's just the, the cutest little sweet Southern Belle lady, and she just can talk like a frat boy when she wants to. And she said, oh, my favorite place is the come and go. And it just made me laugh so hard. But so <laughs> Piano is designing this, and I did a little dig, little research into it and just to find out a little more about it. And um, so there were six firms shortlisted, um, Big, Bolin, Sawinski, Jackson, Morphosis, Softy, and SOM. It's going in Des Moines, and it's in Des Moines across the street from the Papa John Sculpture Park, which is not Papa John Pizza. It is Papa John is a venture capitalist. It's something called the Western Gateway Park. And Des Moines did this Western Gateway Park as a public-private partnership. So it's the city put in some money and private enterprises put in some money to make this new public space downtown. And I think, and um, and so Come and Go is moving their headquarters from the suburbs down back into downtown. And I think this is common in cities right now. I think we're seeing this a lot, both that some um, employers and companies are thinking about moving back into the city and that a lot of city spaces are becoming funded by private entities so that they can be used by the public and be there as amenities for the public, but it does start to call into question whether they're actually public anymore or not. So congratulations to Renzo. I'm very excited about the how he will take the come and go to heart in his design. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it for me this week. Well, Donna, your endorsement links nicely into mine because in relation to the privately owned public spaces Popus, I think, was like an acceptable acronym for it. I might just be butchering that entirely. Yeah, pops. But Pops or Pops. There we go. Um, yep. So those were extremely popular when I, uh, I lived in San Francisco for some time 
few years ago. And it became a huge thing right as when I was leaving as kind of an answer to a lot of these quickly, not physically densifying, but quickly uh, gentrifying areas where public space wasn't really easily accessible. So it quickly got pushed into kind of corporate plazas. And then they were like, oh, we'll put a badminton tape, a badminton court in here and call it a public space. And they were often very strange because you'd some, you'd have to go into a lobby and then maybe take the elevator up a couple floors and then exit onto a veranda. And you'd be like, oh, well, now I'm in a public space, which is very strange. But I, so I've, I've always like kind of used that as a, uh, a metric to check back in on San Francisco. And I was really happy to read Paul Kesky's latest piece um, on his look at gentrification in San Francisco, because he's a um, he's a Brit, he's coming from outside and hasn't had prior experience living in San Francisco. But he he kind of took a, a perspective on the gentrification discussion, which is you know you don't need to really add anything at this point because it'll up and it'll surge and and it'll ebb and flow as it does. Uh, but his took kind of a, a back and forth look where he takes a few isolated locales in San Francisco. And breaks down different gentrification conflicts by um, basically sides, you know, who's already here and who's trying to come in. Um, and he's not he's not trying to be didactic. He's not trying to, you know, convince you of anything that you either are already well convinced of. But I just think it does a, the piece is a very interesting look at very contemporary issues that are happening in San Francisco right now, especially this video, this viral video of a really uncomfortable exchange between some like Silicon Valley dudes who are on a, who are trying to play soccer at this uh, public playground, and these dudes who are already there just playing a pickup game, and it's there. They have this argument over the Silicon Valley dudes have tried to reserve the spot, and the other dudes just want to play a pickup game, and it's so uncomfortable. But it income it encompasses so much about what is going on in San Francisco. Yeah, I spent uh, a few days last week in San Francisco, and. I, yeah, I got an earful from the uh, Uber drivers because they were just, I mean, they said that in the years that they've been driving, not, not Uber necessarily, but cabs um, in the city, they've never experienced the kind of horrible traffic that they're experiencing right now due to just all the building. They said that the building that has, that's going up right now in San Francisco is just unprecedented. Yeah. On, on land that was a few years ago deemed like underwater <laughs> or not buildable and now is suddenly buildable. Mm. It's amazing. Does anyone Ken? else have something to endorse for this week? Ken? Um, just a couple quick things, if you don't mind. The uh, 2014 Harvard student for that salvage stadium project, I really liked a lot. So that was one particular thing I liked in the uh, in the news this past week. Um, I, I noticed that uh, NCARB is saying that um, the need for architects is rising again. So it kind of um, I was thinking about that in my in my criticism of the um, the dean of NJIT. Seems like we're back, um, we're needed again. So it goes really goes to my point about the dean again being short sighted. He's thinking, you know, now seeing what what happened in the past and applying the past to the future, and and this comes out and it completely contradicts him. Um, but in in that on that note, I, I one of the things I wanted to say, I, I listened to that piece last. Last week, after you said I should get over myself and hearing my own voice, <laughs> I listened to it again. And, and I think the one thing I wanted to clarify that I, I kind of cringed at is that I don't think I said enough about the students and the faculty at NGIT. Um, some of the my best experiences have been with a really uh, extensive group of instructors and, and professors there, um, all of whom I won't name because um, they'll probably hate me for naming them. But 
there was a lot of talent at that school. And, and my point was really to set, kind of put a, put a focus on uh, the nature of, of, you know, why does someone get to run a school for 23 years and then, you know, then be, be critical of another program that might or might not have some impact on their own edu- and on their, on their school. So I think, you know, I, if anything, I really wanted to say that uh, the the professors there are fantastic. The students there really give it their all. And, and it's not because I was emailed by somebody to say that. I just thought, you know, it, it was really I was taking a very harsh stance against the dean. And I, I don't step away from that. But I also wanted to say that um, very good, talented people that go to that school and teach at that school. And it shouldn't my comments should not be you know reflective of of something that I didn't get there because I did get a lot there. So that's all I have to say. Obviously, you obviously <laughs> got a great education there. I had, I had a handful of great professors there, um, you know, and they, uh, and one in particular, um, you know, I had two professors that if I didn't enter into that school at the time I did, I probably wouldn't be the person I am today. And it was really, I was really quite fortunate to, to come at the school at that time. And I had, two great professors and, and, um, you know, they were really instrumental in kind of pointing a path towards a different kind of thinking about architecture. And so, you know, I think that, I think that kind of got lost in my screed against a a particular individual. And, um, you know, I kind of let, sometimes I let my emotions kind of run away and I'm not really present in the moment to kind of reflect on that. And I did have some opportunity to reflect on that. And I was like, wow, this is pretty harsh. Without saying <laughs> without saying too many positive things about the people at the school that were really who did have an impact, so I thought I'd say that today. Well, Thanks, Ken. Yeah, that is nice. All right. Well, I think this is uh, time to wrap this one up. It's been a long episode, and I know that uh, everyone's got turkey on their minds. <laughs> so um, I hope everybody has an awesome Thanksgiving. Uh, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank everybody for listening to the podcast so far. Uh, You guys are awesome. And we love the feedback that we've been getting. And I love the uh, just hearing people talking about about uh, just listening to every episode. It's it's been it's been so awesome. And I've I've been having a lot of fun with it. And thank you guys for uh, being a part of this and making it better every week really appreciate it thanks for having us yeah thank you it's been fun all right well have a great thanksgiving guys you too have a thanksgiving yeah you too have a good week great thanksgiving talk to you next week bye bye Bye. Bye.